0: Get your advanced PhD in WoW from Floor and Decor. If you're a pro, you're already an expert in tile, wood, and stone. And with Floor and Decor's job site delivery, their free design services, and pro rewards that actually reward you, your business is set to grow from one client to the next. Floor and Decor isn't just a couple of aisles, it's an entire store designed to help your business boom. It's Floor and Decor. Brett McKay here and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. The world of Norse mythology and legend is a thoroughly fascinating one. And my guest has captured it in all its compelling mystery in his book, which retells these stories called Tales of Valhalla." His name is Martin Wittick, And today he takes us on a gripping tour of Norse culture and myth. We begin the show discussing who the Norse people were and the misconceptions people commonly have about them, including associating them exclusively with Vikings. We also talk about misconceptions about the Vikings themselves, what it really meant to be a Viking. We then get into to why it's hard to completely recapture Norse myths and rituals as they were originally known Martin then unfolds the Norse creation story Offers interesting snapshots of the major Norse gods Including Odin, Thor, and Loki And explains what Ragnarok was all about We end in a conversation discussing Norse sagas And how Norse culture continues to influence our modern culture today After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is slash Norse myths Martin joins me now via clearcast.io All right, Martin Wittick, welcome to the show. Good to speak with you. So you co-authored a book with your daughter, Hannah Wittick called Tales of Valhalla, Norse Myths and Legends. So before we get into some of the specific Norse myths, let's talk about the Norse themselves. I think this is a, a people that we, we hear a lot about. It's, they have an influence on our culture even today, but we don't know much about. So who, who were the Norse? Good question. Uh, basically misunderstandings about the north who
1: are they where do they come from i think basically one of the the problems is often when we look at the past we forget how complicated sophisticated uh, and subtle the past can be and we can have a very simplistic view of the past and i think that almost applies to anybody when they look at the past at any point in history. The past is always a bit kind of, you know, primitive and a bit out there and a bit over there. And, and I think that the, the Norse suffer from that misconception more so than many others because of the Vikings. And we'll probably talk about Vikings a little bit later on, but because people have this incredible image of, of violence and destruction and I'm not for a moment going to pretend that some of that did not happen, in fact a significant amount of that clearly happened, we can tend to have a rather very rough and ready view of the Norse and, and other Scandinavians of the Viking Age. Whereas in fact, when we actually study them, we see people of, of remarkable sophistication, great artistic skills, uh, cultural skills, poetic skills, and so on. And so these people are people just like you and me. The fact they live within a a different technological period of time doesn't stop them having the same level of sophistication and questions and issues and problems and so on and so forth. And I think we have to remember that when we're looking at them. And we have to look sometimes through some of the the very popular views of them, particularly, you know, the Viking axe-in-hand type person, and realise that behind there, there are men, and women, young and old of all sorts of different classes who have very, very interesting and complicated lives. And we're looking at people who lived in Scandinavia. So the modern countries of Denmark, Norway and Sweden, though they didn't exist as such in the Viking age, they, they were, they were forming, they were coming together, kingdom forming was, was going on. But we tend to say Denmark, Norway and Sweden for well, simplicity, really. We need to have some kind of fix on this. And the amazing diaspora, the amazing spread of these people's culture from about 750 onwards for the next 200 years, we've got this incredible explosion of settlement out of Scandinavia, which stretches all the way from Kiev, Rus and the Caspian Sea, unbelievably, to North America, where we now have Pretty solid evidence for Viking settlement and newfound land. And probably we'll find more eventually down the eastern seaboard, northeastern seaboard of 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 the modern USA as well. They raid into the Mediterranean, and you basically have got this amazing east-west, north-south spread of Norse culture along the English Channel into Ireland, uh, Northern Scotland, taking over parts of England, Frisia, raiding into Francia, which is now sort of modern France. They are are a a remarkably dynamic and energetic people who have a huge impact on their neighbours. And you can see why people sometimes remember the shock and awe of the Viking Age without necessarily remembering the sophistication and the culture. And it's kind of getting through one to reach the other is the challenge.
0: So, yeah, well, I mean, I guess the biggest misunderstanding about the Norse is that they were just, they were all Vikings. They all wore the helmets with the horns, <laughs> right? That, <laughs> yeah. that, that's probably, that, that wasn't like that. No, no.
1: Well, in fact, interestingly, at the most simplistic, not a single Viking Age helmet has been found with horns on or with wings. So in fact, our most powerful image of the vikings you know if you go to a fancy dress party in a horned helmet everybody knows who you are you're a viking no uh, vikings as far as we can tell did not wear horned helmets they did not wing, have winged helmets what's interesting is that's probably how gods were represented that we do in fact see carvings on runestones and and, and other uh, other major monuments uh, of, of people with you know, winged head helmets and, and horned helmets, but it's probably gods that were represented in that way, not, not ordinary people. And, and Viking was something that, Something rather more of what you did rather than what you were. It means something like adventurer. There's various debates about where the word comes from. There's an Icelandic word that means to 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 go out, to turn around, to go places. There is an area of southern Norway called Vik. It may well in fact refer to a a creek or an inlet of the sea from which these people, you know, went forth on their adventures. But basically. To go Viking was to go adventuring. It was kind of how shall one put it? A muscular free enterprise, which probably meant that if the people you met were ready for you, you did a bit of trading. If they weren't ready for you, you did a bit of smash and grab. So it was a it was a very kind of flexible free enterprise expansion out into neighboring areas. And you can see if you were obviously the object of the smash and grab, you had a pretty negative view of of these Norse. Otherwise, they'd be quite interesting people trading walrus ivory and amber and all sorts of stuff. It's also probable that people had different phases of their lives, particularly elite young men, in which they did a bit of Viking, got a bit of money, came back, got married, settled down, and turned into a farmer in Denmark or Norway and put their Viking days behind them. So as I say, Viking was probably more of something that you did rather than something that you were, but it's now very much entered into the popular culture. And I use it. We all use it. We talk about the Viking age. We talk about Vikings. But technically, we should be talking about Norse and Norse culture. And Vikings are one aspect of that. So that also obscures things a bit.
0: So, I mean, are there any mis- misconceptions about Vikings? Besides that, you know, Viking was just a, sort of a period of your life that you might have taken part in. Any other big misconceptions about about that? I think the other big
1: misconception was that... One assumes that Vikings were all the same for the whole period of the Viking age. So basically, between, let's say, 750 and, you know, 1050, big, big expansion of people outside Scandinavia. Well, people weren't the same throughout that time. There were, there were different levels of sophistication of different people. They changed over time. One of the things that's often forgotten is that although the, we'll come on to this, but perhaps a little bit later on, that although the Scandinavian homelands were some of the last places to convert to Christianity, where Vikings settled, they tended to convert to Christianity within one or two generations. So actually the Vikings were cultural chameleons. They did change where they landed, where they arrived at, but also they fitted in with what was going on already. And that's the kind of image of the Christian Vikings, if you see what I mean away from the homelands that, that, that we, we've totally forgotten about entirely. And I think that's something to be borne in mind that they are very, very flexible. They are very accommodating where they come against, across something that they want to accommodate to people that cultural chameleons in many
0: ways. So let's let's get more into the Norse culture because, as you said, yeah. it's it's uh, it's very sophisticated, and they have a very somewhat complex mythology which influences their culture. Because so as I was reading the, the the legends and the myths, like it's sort of they all was like it's like, a, it's like a, a spider web almost. Like it all built upon each other, and you had to remember what happened, you know, in this story yep. to understand what, what happened in this story. <laughs> so yep. how? How do we know about Norse mythology? Was there were they you know, prolific writers? Like how do we know about that stuff? This is a really, really
1: important question. It
0: goes to the heart
1: of a lot of what we know or don't know about Norse mythology. The simple matter is, to put it very, very simply, virtually nobody that believed in Norse mythology at any time sat down and wrote about it we see almost all of it through the lens of later writers. Because for large parts of the Viking Age, the Norse that we're talking about were literate or semi-literate. They used runes in order to make inscriptions, but not to actually create literature. So almost everything we know about the Norse myths comes from two much later medieval sources. The first one is the 13th century prose Edda and the 13th century Poetic Edda. And the 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 Prose Edda, sometimes also called the Younger Edda, is believed to have been written by a man called Snorri Sturluson. That's a great Icelandic name, isn't it? An Icelandic chieftain in the early 13th century. Now, Snorri himself was a Christian, and what he basically was doing was he was gathering together a whole bunch of old traditions that were no longer as potent as they once had been, because Iceland had been Christian since about the year 1000. And he was very interested in Norse culture and Norse poetry. And a lot of what he was doing was trying to explain where a lot of the complicated Imagery in Norse poetry came from things like, you know, calling some, calling gold Fafnir's bane or something. And he goes into the mythology in order to explain what that's about. The other big source is something called the Poetic Edda. And that's a collection of anonymous old Norse poems brought together probably about 1270s in Iceland. Again, written by or brought together by people who actually were Christian, but who were seeking to bring together, explain something about their shared past, and explain something about where they were coming from, and the kind of language and culture they now use, trying to trace its roots, really. But because of that, we see it very much from the lens of much later people. And that actually makes it quite difficult, because a lot of those sources are not ultimately trying to give you the A to Z of Norse mythology. It's kind of like, well, you know, we do this. Well, let me explain to you a little bit about where that's coming from. And you know, that's an expression you come across in poetry. Well, let me tell you something about that. And so one of the things, one of the challenges that we found when we were writing the book was we felt we were a little bit like paleontologists. And and you, you pick up that great big slab of rock and somewhere buried in it is this is this, is skeleton of a dinosaur, if you like. Uh, and it's covered by all this matrix of, of complexity and explanation. And as it is, you're looking at it thinking, I don't quite get this. I can't quite see the shape of it because Snorri Sturluson wasn't trying to write a, a comprehensive uh, analysis of Norse myths and legends. And what we've done is, and what, you know, obviously other people have done as well is we've, we've pulled out the various different legends. We've teased them out. We've made them more discrete and we've written about them. And so as a consequence, you can then find this particular story or that particular story or this particular tale or tradition. But if you actually go back into the prose edda or the poetic, poetic edda, what you'll find is all these things mixed in together, mished in together and kind of buried under this, this, this quite complicated layer. I, I'm not saying it's, I'm not saying it can't be accessed, but it does make it quite difficult to actually get your head around it. And we've tried to pull it out and say there's a discrete story here, a discrete story there, there's a tradition here. And then, of course, the stories are amazing. They're remarkable. They're dramatic. They're bloody. They are intriguing. Sometimes they're funny. Um, but be- you can then examine them as stories in their own right. But Snorri Sturluson wasn't actually storytelling. He was pulling on the past in order to make points in 13th century
0: Iceland. So it's not like ancient Greek mythology where we, you know, there's written stories or even like Roman mythology, like Ovid, you know, talked about all the different stories very discreetly. Like you, yeah, you had to do the work to suss this out to kind of get an idea of what their myth is. That's right. That's right. So it's not like also, for example, opening up the Old Testament
1: and it starts at the beginning and it works through and it works through and it works through and it's this person's story, that person's story, then this happens and that happens. That That's just not how it is. You find yourself in the middle of one story and then you're off into another one, then you're off into another one and then you double back and then you get as we'll see a bit later on, you get a different story about the origins of the world. And you're thinking, wait a minute. I thought I had one story in my head already because clearly uh, there's a lot going on here. So it is quite, it is quite challenging to read it in the original uh, uh, translation. I mean, um, because as I say, it's kind of buried within this matrix of a different kind of agenda. But we also find information about the mythology in some other areas as well, which is perhaps a little bit more clear-cut. Uh, we can find it in some of the later sagas. We might talk about that a bit later on, some of the stories that refer to the gods and goddesses. We can find it in place names. Uh, and we realise, obviously, these gods and goddesses were significant to the Norse. So today, a big hiking area in Iceland is called Mork, Thors Forest. Well, obviously, that's recording Thor. You can find places like Thundersfield in England, Th- uh, Thor's open countryside. You can find various different place names named after the Norse gods and goddesses. And that's another source. Archaeology gives you some information as well. We find Thor's hammers sc- uh, found by archaeologists across Scandinavia and in Britain. And so we can see something about the associated. uh, culture that went with with being a follower of Thor. We we can see on some helmets from Sweden, we can see mounted warriors with birds on their shoulders, probably Odin and his ravens. We can see a woman carrying a drinking horn from Oland in in Sweden. She's probably a Valkyrie. Uh, A warrior struggles with two bears on a bronze plaque from Torslunda, also in Sweden, seems to show you animal hybrids. You can go to somewhere in Gotland and stare at a picture stone and see Odin, it doesn't say it's Odin, but it obviously is from elsewhere, riding his eight-legged horse, Sleipnir. So all sorts of clues are left in other areas that kind of join the dots to help us make sense of the written sources in Snorri. For example, In north of England, and on the Isle of Man, you can find some amazing Christian crosses which have pictures of, of all things, Thor fishing for the Midgard serpent in Cumbria. What's going on there? You can see Odin being eaten by the wolf at Ragnarok from Kirk Andreas on the Isle of Man. You can see Regin forging Sigurd's sword and Sigurd roasting a dragon's heart on a stone cross from Halton in Lancashire. So these show you how, as the Norse went into other areas, they used their existing imagery, their powerful mythological imagery, to declare themselves, to record their stories, and sometimes, even when they became Christians, to use the old imagery to carry new messages. So we've got the Eddas, we've got the archaeology, it's not complete, but from it we can get a picture of some of these dramatic
0: stories and mythologies. Do we have any idea if there were rituals associated with their mythology? Like, do they make sacrifices to these gods? That's, yeah, good point. A lot a
1: lot of what happened within Norse mythology, we think, and within the practice of Norse mythology, seems to be quite home-based. That There were big cult centers. For example, we know at Uppsala in Sweden was a big cult center where there were big sacrifices. People came together in large numbers at Uppsala when well into the 11th century, for example, which is pretty late. But the evidence seems to suggest that quite a lot of what happened in terms of devotion to a particular god or goddess happened very much within the local community, within the home community. So, for example, in Iceland, we see local chieftains called Gothi who seem to be responsible for the local carrying out of Devotion to Thor or devotion to Odin or devotion to Freya. So quite a lot of it seems to be quite, 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 quite local, quite, quite small scale in that sense, quite community based and without the kind of accompanying literature that you would find within Islam or Christianity or Hinduism. So that a lot of it will be orally transmitted from place to place. And as a consequence, we can't always be sure whether a Norse settler in Normandy has exactly the same set of ideas and beliefs as a Norse settler in Dublin, let's say, uh, or back in the homelands. But what we do find, the same gods and goddesses cropping up. So there is clearly this common pantheon, if you like, of gods and goddesses. But clearly, people pick on the ones that they feel most associated with. So we have, for example, somebody in Iceland who's called Freya's Govi because he was so associated with Freya that that was the particular devotion that he had. We hear in the Vinland sagas, somebody talking particularly about his devotion to Thor. So I think in some ways it could be a little bit pick and mix in terms of where you wanted to lay your emphasis as an individual within Norse society. But overall you made up this kind of complicated mosaic and there would, there would have been sacrifices. There would have been rituals that were carried out, but we struggle to find what you might call a very clear example of a priesthood or an organization across the whole of the Norse world. just doesn't seem to have worked quite that way.
0: And I imagine that contributed to uh, the, the chameleon aspect that you mentioned of Norse mythology. There wasn't a set like dogma they followed, so they were able to incorporate that into their own personal beliefs.
1: I think that is very, very true. I also think it meant that when they moved away from the homelands, it actually made it in some ways harder to maintain the old mythologies, because on one hand, obviously it didn 't need a trained priesthood it didn 't need literate people to write books, as it were, but on the other hand, its very low key localized version, I think allowed it to dilute and break up more readily and and become more more more, more compromised, I suppose so we hear, for example, of an Icelandic warrior who was a Christian, but he prayed to Thor before sea journeys and when facing particularly difficult decisions. So you think, um, okay, I don't think that's quite how it's meant to work from either side. But clearly, it allowed him, for, for a generation at least, to kind of mix and match between the two. And I think it kind of encouraged this, this breakup in the long term. So strangely enough, what was quite... A flexible religion, in the end, probably doomed it to disintegration.
0: Well, let's get into the specifics here of Mm. uh, of some of the Norse mythology. So, every human culture has a genesis story of some sort, creation story. What did the Norse mythology say about the creation of the world or the universe? Very, very dramatic. We, we have a collection of Norse myths known
1: as the Prose Ed, as I said. Particularly in it, there's a section called The Tricking of gilfi And in there, we find stories brought together telling tales of the adventures of the Norse gods and giants from the beginning of life to the building of the bridge Bifrost between Asgard and the Earth. And what we have is this image that before time or anything else existed, there was simply a great void and no life. Then there came into existence a place called Niflheim, with a great spring at its centre, and from it flowed ten rivers. Near here was Hell Gates. A flaming region called Muspel appeared, and from this place, at the very end of the world, as it were, would come Surt, who would defeat the gods and burn up all things with fire. And to begin with, out of this frozen... Scandinavian wasteland. You can kind of see the 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 geographical background speaking into this. Out of this frozen wasteland, uh, great poison rivers flowed, encrusted with ice, there we go, and from which vapours rose. And the northern part of this was covered in thick ice, the southern part melted with the heat from Muspel. At the point where the ice and the heat met, and I suspect Icelanders would have understood very much about where, you know, where heat and ice meet. The melting drops took on the form of a man. And this, his, this man was actually a giant. His name was Ymir. He was a frost giant. And from Ymir, we descended all the frost giants. He sweated while he slept. And from the sweat under his left arm, there was formed a male and a female and a sun grew from the sweat of his legs and all the race of frost giants came from him. The ice continued to melt, and it dripped, and it formed a great cow, humla, and from its udder there flowed four great rivers of milk, which fled this giant. Th- then, then the cow licked the salty rocks, and from these melting rocks appeared somebody called Buri, and from him came three sons, Odin, who we'll hear a lot more about later, Vili, and V. They killed the giant, Ymir and from his body there flowed so much blood that it drowned all the other frost giants except for one. They then took his body, broke it apart, and created from that body the cosmos as we know it. From his body they made the earth. From his blood, this is Odin and his brothers, from, from, from the blood of the giant they made the sea and all the lakes. From his bones they made the rocks. They took his teeth And created the tumbled, broken pieces of rock scree that lie on mountainsides. The sea surrounded all the earth and confined the earth in the middle of the great sea. Then they took his skull and with it they made the sky, which had four corners. And under each corner there sat a dwarf. They took sparks of fire from that place of fire, Muspel, threw it into the air and made the stars. They took his brain and made the cloud. And then they structured the earth. And this is where it'll start to sound familiar to anybody who's read Tolkien, for example, because Middle Earth's about to appear. They said, well, the earth is a great circle, and beyond it lies a great sea, and the giants live on the shore of that great sea. But they're prevented from entering the other places of the earth because a great hedge has been established there, which they've made from the eyelashes, Odin and the other gods, from the eyelashes of Imir." That mighty hedge is called Midgard or Middle Earth. So Tolkien, you know, Tolkien fans will recognize Middle Earth. And that's a place where people live. And the principle seems to be that the gods are put within, within the fence of civilization. It's called Asgard, the fence of the gods. The giants are put outside of the fence in Utangard. Outside, and in between, there is Middle Earth, if you like, Midgard, where human beings live. So you've got this kind of tripartite breakup of different beings. You've got the gods in the most civilized place, as it were. You've got the giants and their forces of destruction, uh, and of raw energy, and of violence, and of lust. uh, And they're kind of, they're kind of literally literally beyond the pale. They're outside the fence. And in between, kind of a, a bit of one and a bit of the other. You can see human nature here. There are human beings, and human beings are made from pieces of wood found on the sheets the seashore and Odin and his brothers form these beings and they give one, one one of the brothers gives them the gift of life the second brother gives beings the gift of consciousness the third gives human beings the gift of speech hearing and sight so you can see how there is this mythological story about how the world as we know it, but also how the world as we imagine it and and, and as it might be exists. And it's all united by this great ash tree. So you have to kind of imagine this
0: huge
1: tree, Yggdrasil, and its branches stretch right across the whole world and they unite all these different realms of being. It grows up into the, go- into the realm of the gods. Its roots go into the land of the giants. Odin, for example, goes down to a well there and gives up one of his eyes as payment for wisdom. At the very bottom, there's a dragon called a nidhogg gnawing at the roots of the tree. And the gods hold court at one level, and the giants are kind of being touched by the roots of the tree at the other, le- at the other level. And within that That strange kind of view of this kind of tree-like connection of the worlds, in the middle there, living beneath the ash tree, are the norns, N-O-R-N-S, and they decide the fate of human beings. So you have this quite dramatic cosmology of different worlds and levels of being United by this great ash tree, and, and I'm giving you a very simplified version of it because there's 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 stags in the branches, and there's a, a dragon at the bottom called Nidhog, and there's a, squir- a squirrel called Ratatosk who spends all his time running up and down the tree taking messages of ill will and trouble between an eagle on the top and the dragon at the bottom. So this this strange, mysterious, dynamic world, as I say, trying to explain the world in which we live, but also the imaginary world as we think it might be beyond us. The world of dragons, the world of giants, the world of dwarves, the world of the gods, united by this great this great ash tree.
0: No, it's it's very complex and really rich. I mean, it's like, you know, you're describing that. I was like, boy, you know, the Adam and Eve story, it's pretty, <laughs> pretty simple. You know, God created the earth and... Seven days, all right, Adam and Eve created, that's it.
1: It's much more straightforward, exactly. The the, the Norse myths and legends are very, very complicated. As we see when we come on to look at the gods, how the gods came into existence, there are sometimes different stories feeding into it as well. So part of the complexity is due to the fact that there is no one simple canon of what is it we all sign up to. And I think what we have to imagine is that when people like Snorri Sturluson brought it all together, they actually pulled on a tradition that was probably never completely coherent or never completely agreed. So if in fact, as you're reading it, you end up thinking, oh, wait a minute, I'm, I'm not following this quite. Um, I thought that was there. How's that there? It's probably because you're spotting the joins in a story that people like Snorri bolted together and you you're kind of you're kind of spotting the construction evidence and thinking <laughs> hmm how does that tie together then uh, so some some of the richness and the, the complexity certainly comes from the fact that that people like Snorri were bringing together a whole bunch of stories that nobody had actually sat down before that as far as we know a, a, and put it all together in one place and that makes a complexity it makes for it being quite intriguing it also means that sometimes you get stories that seem to contradict other stories
0: too We're going to take a quick break for a word from our sponsors. Texas Pete is the sauce that allows you to sauce like you mean it. Each Texas Pete sauce is packed with a bold, balanced flavor. The signature tanginess is what makes it a legendary hot sauce that can be used on just about anything. You're definitely going to want to try every flavor. The original hot sauce has a famous secret blend of fermented peppers. Their hotter hot sauce is three times hotter than the original, and it's not for the faint of heart. They also got a flavor called Sabor by Texas Pete, adds authentic Mexican flavor, and they also have a dust-dry seasoning that matches the flavor of the original hot sauce in a flavorful dry rub. But... The flavor that I've been enjoying lately is the chopped sriracha sauce. It's got chili, garlic, and some tropical tangy notes. It's really good. I love putting on my eggs. Texas Pete sauce like you mean it. Visit texaspeete.com and use the store locator to find Texas Pete products as well as purchase sauces and get recipe inspiration. And you can use promo code podcast24 for 20% off at texaspeete.com. That's podcast24 for 20% off at texaspeete.com check out the Sriracha Cha Sauce. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the US with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over two million happy customers in the United States? You can grow lemon, avocado, olive or fig trees inside your home on top of the wide variety of house plants available. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with their 30 day alive and thrive guarantee, they offer a free plant consultation forever. So, if you want to try fast growing trees, right now they have some of the best deals online, like up to half off on select plants. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when they use code manliness at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at fastgrowingtrees.com using code manliness at checkout. Fastgrowingtrees.com, code manliness. Offers valid for a limited time, terms and conditions may apply. If you're like my family, we're getting to the busy part of the year. Spring sports are happening, a lot of after school activities. So sometimes planning and cooking dinner just don't have time for that. That's where Factor Meals comes in. With Factor, you get fresh, never frozen meals that are chef crafted, dietitian approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. With Factor, you get restaurant quality meals that are ready to heat and eat whenever you are. No prepping, no cooking, no cleanup needed. It's also less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. So we've been using factory meals in the McKay household for a while now. There's a lot of reasons why we like them. First off, the food tastes great. Last week, I had creamy pesto pork chop with spinach, cauliflower, rice, roasted green beans. Tasted fantastic. But the big selling point, it's easy. There's no cooking, there's no cleaning up. It's great for those nights when you're busy and you don't have much time uh, to, to take care of dinner and you don't want to do takeout because you feel gross after takeout. If you'd like to try Factor Meals, head to factormeals.com manliness50 and use code manliness50 to get 50% off. That's code manliness50 at factormeals.com manliness50 to get 50% off. Check it out today and make sure to check out the creamy pesto pork chop. It's really good. M E E T com slash manliness policies issued by Western Southern life assurance company, not available in certain States prices subject to underwriting and health questions. And now back to the show. So we, we talked about how Odin came into existence. How did the other gods mm. come into existence? Well, this is a very very good question. If I could just pause on Odin just for one moment because actually Snorri has
1: two completely different stories for how Odin came into existence. Indeed, how the gods came into existence. So this kind of leads into your second question. The first one was, you know, the cow, the ice, the melting, the formation of the gods, okay. Uh, but also in in an account called Inglinga saga, Snorri Stur- Sturluson also has a very, very different account, dramatically different, and he says, "Well, actually, the gods were once heroes. They were, they were actually human beings, just like you and me. And actually, they lived to the east of the Tana River, which it sounds like he's talking about the River Don. Now, that's in southern Russia, east of the Ukraine, and bordering the Caucasus. So." We have one story which is very, very mythological, and then we have another story by story that says, actually, there is an account that once the gods lived in the northern Caucasus, they lived in, effectively, southern Russia. And there, they were heroic, uh, they were people, they were human beings like you and me, but they were so dramatic, they were so successful in war, that later people decided they were gods. In fact, he says the land that they lived in was Azaland, literally land of the Aesir, or Asia-land. So we end up with these two very, very different stories. And then Snorri says, well, how did they, how did they get to be in Scandinavia? Well, th- there are two different families of gods. There are the Esir, and that's Odin, the ones we all know about. Odin, Thor, Frigg, Tyre, Loki, Balder, Heimdall, and so on. And then there was a different family of gods called the Vanir, and those are people like Njord and his children Freya and Freya. And as, as the gods, the Esir, the Iseir, m- migrated out of Azzerland. They crashed into the Vanir, and there was a war between the Aesir and the Vanir. And in the end, they decided they'd make peace by giving each other hostages, which, said Snorri, is why you now find some of the gods of the Vanir living amongst the Aesir, Aesir and why you find some of the gods of the Aesir living among the Vanir. Uh, and then they came to Scandinavia. And they set themselves up there and they founded the kingdoms and then they died and then died. And then later people thought they were gods and worshiped them as such. And you're thinking, what is going on here? And I think what's going on here is two things. One, Snorri as a Christian is uncomfortable with the idea of the Norse gods and goddesses being real gods and goddesses. So he puts forward a construction where he says, "Actually, they were heroes. Later, people thought they were gods and goddesses, and told all these remarkable stories about them that I'm a, I'm about to tell you now. And that's all the stuff that you know we know about Norse myths and stuff. But actually, between you and me, they weren't real gods. They were just heroes, and other people got it wrong. So I think." Partly that's going on. It's Snorri working with earlier myths and feeling uncomfortable with what he's got. Secondly, I think probably that in this relationship between the Aesir and the Vanir, you've probably got two earlier traditions of religion within the Norse. So probably at some point, people in Scandinavia believed in a different set of gods and goddesses, and one group became more dominant than the other. One ideology became more successful than the other. And that left people with a puzzle, because they ended up with gods they knew pretty well who were warrior, out there gods, you know, fighting gods, people like Odin and Thor and so on. But they also were left with people that were primarily fertility gods, Freya, for example, and her brother Freya. And it's possible, this is all a bit speculative, but it's possible the fertility gods actually belonged to a different layer of Norse mythology. And at some point in prehistory that will never ever untangle, these two ideologies, these two different religions clashed, came together, and were kind of fused. And what came out of it was this strange kind of Construct where there's two different families of the gods. They live in different places. They do marry each other. They do have relationships. They do sort of work together, but they're kind of different. Amazing, isn't
0: it? No, it is amazing. And and, and the way the 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 gods are described, like they're they're very human, right? It's not like the Christian god, like they're very human. Like it's almost like they're humans with superpowers, right? Like they're like the Marvel yes. comic Thor. Um, yes. So like they, were they? I guess imagine they weren't omnipotent or omniscient, correct? It is quite curious, because I say, when you have this one this one thread of Snorri, they are
1: they're magical figures, but Odin actually is a mortal who dies and is cremated and, and so on. But when you get onto the more fully formed myths, when you actually are describing them as being gods, as it were, on one level, they appear immortal, they appear all-seeing, they appear all-knowing, they, they reveal themselves to people, they can disguise themselves they take sides in quarrels, people pray to them, and so on. But as you look at them, they actually are much more like empowered divine human beings. So they've got a lot more in common with the inhabitants of Greek Olympus than they have with 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 any Christian or Islamic, for example, view of, of God. So, for example, They're very flawed. They fall out with each other. They squabble with each other. They fight with each other. They betray with each other. They commit adultery, you know. Odin, for example, has to sacrifice his eye to get wise. Thor ends up with a fight with a giant and a giant's whetstone, you know, embedded in his skull. We see them having affairs with giantesses. Yeah, so giants aren't always bad, you see. We see, we see them. Causing trouble as well. When we look at Loki in a, in a little while, we see that we, we see mischief going on, and of course, eventually, hanging over all of this is the day of Ragnarok, which, which, which no doubt, we'll look we'll look at a little bit later on. That effectively, these gods, apparently immortal, apparently all powerful, apparently dramatic, have hanging over them utter and complete destruction. The day of Ragnarok is always coming. The monsters will break out. The giants will crash into Asgard, the home of the gods. They will destroy the bridge by frost. They will bring down the created order in fire. It will be the twilight of the gods.
0: That's that's intense. And we'll talk about Ragnarok here in a bit. But let's talk about each of the individual gods because like like the Greek gods, they all seem to take on a particular attribute or a virtue or they represented something larger. So like Odin, he's often called the all father. He's like the like sort of Zeus in the, the the Olympic gods. But he what did he represent to the to the Norse? The, Odin's
1: very, Odin's interesting, actually, very interesting, because on, on one level, he, he, he is a warrior god. We hear stories of Odin throwing his spear over the assembled host, and that would decide who would live and who would die. We hear about Valkyries, the, these extraordinary women who ride out and, and, and choose the best of the dead, the best of the slain to come back and, and live in Odin's hall in, in Valhalla. I mean, it's one of those places that lots of people have heard of, and they, they, they fight all day and kill each other all day. And then they feast all night and they're all ready to come to Odin's aid on the day of Ragnarok. So on one hand, he is, he, he, he is a warrior god. And, and it's interesting that, for example, the Anglo-Saxons, when they were pagans in England, they believed in a similar god called Woden. Woden is Odin, for example. And every single one of the Anglo-Saxon royal families, except for the royal family of the kingdom of Essex, all claim descent from Woden, that is Odin. So Odin, in, in, on one hand, is, is, is a warrior god. He's, he's a god of aristocrats. He's a god of rulers. He's a god of kings. He's 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 a god who's going to sort of you know grant you victory in battle but on the other hand he's also mysterious because he can also sometimes choose to travel in the company of men in the guise of grimr the masked one and and when he's in his masked form you don't know it's odin at all and then he's mysterious then he's challenging then he's troubling so for example he he come he, he comes across Thor in a myth called the conflict at the ferry, and they end up in in a battle of insults. They're very, very, very rude to each other, and Thor comes off worst. And you're thinking, but he never, he never knows it's Odin doing this to him. We see, for example, the the sons of a king, King Hrodung, Frigg, Odin's wife, looks after one. Odin looks after the other and they both compete as to which ones of these little boys who are there who are their clients are going to win and and odin basically encourages one to betray the other to undermine the other to to dis- destroy the other we we see in the saga of king hrolf kraki that on his way to battle, he, he stays at the house of a farmer, strange, mysterious old man, you know, the classic stuff, you know, grey beard, hood up, one-eyed perhaps. And he makes a mistake there. He doesn't accept gifts given him by the man. And later on, we discover, ah, it was Odin. If only he'd accepted them. And as a, as a result of that, Odin's angry and Odin curses him and, and, and Hrolf Kraki dies in battle. So on one hand, we have this, we have this, Odin, All Father, as he's described, this kind of Zeus-type figure. On the other hand, we have this rather strange, mysterious, sometimes appears in disguise god. You don't quite know it's him or not. Um, he sits beneath the scaffold because he's the god of the slain. What's, what, you know, what's that all about? You know, Is Valkyries choose who will live and who will die. There is something quite there is something quite grim in the way which we normally use that word uh, about Odin, as well as grand. And it's also interesting that at some point it looks like he might have surpassed or replaced Thor as the chief god, because some very early records talk about three major Norse gods being worshipped in Scandinavia, and they seem to suggest that it's Thor who's first. So we'll come on to Thor perhaps in a moment, but it looks like there might have been a time when Odin and Thor well, it wasn't necessarily clear who was the dominant force between the two. And at some point, this looks like there may have been a shift in the mythology, and Odin became the dominant god, with Thor then becoming, as we see in a moment, much more the god of farmers, the god of weather, and so on and so forth. But, but we can't trace exactly when that happened or why that happened because we haven't got a written records for it.
0: Well, yeah, yeah. Odin's a very complex guy. So he's not only he's a, he's a warrior god. He's mysterious because he can go around in disguise. But he's also the god of like wisdom. You know, he sacrificed his eye to, for wisdom. Then he like hung himself on a tree. You know, a sacrifice to myself for myself so he could uncover the power of the rune. Yeah, to get to yeah. gain the
1: power of rune magic. Yeah, yeah. That's like right. what
0: was rune magic? That was just like the the power of like knowing what the symbols meant or did they actually... Yes, yeah. I mean, basically,
1: runes were Scandinavian letter forms deliberately made angular because they are very easy to carve on wood or engrave on stone or put into metal. And it just reminds us that the pre-Christian Scandinavia was not entirely illiterate. Runes were used and they were used to do very mundane things. I mean, I've seen a comb, for example, from um, Eastern England, and it just says, Hothroth made this comb in runes. And that's not terribly magical. But then you find other use of runes were thought to, in, in certain combinations. They become spells. So runes are an interestingly ambiguous thing. On one hand, they are mun- mundane things. You can find rune stones in Scandinavia that will simply sell you, tell you, this guy went on an adventure to the east. He died fighting the Saracens. He never came back. Oh, that was a bit of a disaster, wasn't it? But by the way, um, he's left his land to his brothers and his sons. Straightforward memorial stuff. But you can also find things engraved with runes in which the runes in their combinations seem to be magical. And it's quite clear that some People in Norse, the Norse period, believed that runes in combination had magical significance. And they believed that the the power to use runes and to work magic went back to this original Odin hanging himself on the tree, sacrificing himself to himself, reaching out, screaming, grabbing the runes and, and, and having this m- magical knowledge in his grasp. So he is, you're absolutely right. He's, he's also a god of magic. And it was said that he gained this magic from his relationship with the Vanir, those, um, those rather more fertility gods and goddesses that we mentioned earlier on, uh, that he had a special kind of magic that he could use to 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 take over people's minds, to control people's minds. And of course, some people who are adherents of Odin believe that if they listened to him and they did these things, they could gain this magic for themselves. So he he is a complex character. Thor is interesting too, of course.
0: Yeah, let's talk about Thor because he's famous because of Marvel comics and the movies. Absolutely. But tell us about him.
1: Well, as I say, it's possible that Thor may represent an earlier strata of Norse belief before the warrior god of the Vikings, you know, Odin, as it were. He's a weather god. That's why we have thunder, for example. The the word thunder comes from Thor, Thor's voice. Thursday, uh, appropriately today, we're speaking about uh, today. Thursday is Thor's day, as a matter of interest. So the days of the week often record the names of Norse gods and goddesses. He's very popular amongst ordinary farming folk, and he's he's also the traditional enemies of giants and defenders of the homes of the gods. So, for example, we see him going off to to, to get a giant's cauldron in a poem called Heimr's poem. He gets caught up in all sorts of adventures. He he's often comic, and we have him cross-dressing as a woman to fool giants in Thrym's poem, for example. He sometimes is it, presented as being strong but not very bright. He, he's bested by Odin at the insult, which takes place at the ferry. In the tricking of Gilfi, he doesn't know he's hiding in a giant's glove. So in the morning he says, oh, that that strange place we were hiding in, it was a giant's glove. He he gets beaten at a series of challenges in, in the hall of King Utgarda loki But he's clearly... Popular. He's clearly popular. He's popular amongst ordinary people. He's regarded as, as I say, a weather god, perhaps a god of, of, of crops. He's famous for his magical hammer Mjolnir, depicted as a fearsome weapon to crush skulls and level mountains. He battles with the Midgard serpent which is this, this, this strange mythological creature who's a sea serpent fathered by Loki with a giantess so large it encircles the, the entire world. And according to Norse mythology, Thor will encounter the Midgard serpent three times. Three times he'll battle it. He'll, he'll go on a fishing trip and he'll almost get it into the boat and, and then it'll break three. And, and the third time he comes across it will be at Ragnarok, the end of the world, when they will destroy each other. So he is—he is a guardian of the gods. He's a protector of the gods. He's the one that goes off on adventures into Giant Land. He crushes giant skulls. But on the other hand, sometimes he's strong, but he's not very quick. He's—he can—he can be a, 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 bit, a bit poked fun at. Basically, in the mythology, no one pokes fun at Odin, but
0: they sometimes do at Thor. Well, what another god that's pretty famous that a lot of people think about when they think about the the, the Norse gods is Tyr. Is another one. Yes. What, what was? What did he represent? What was his role in the mythology? Tia is interesting
1: because Tia is a war god who you would think would have a higher profile than he does in Norse mythology. When he appears, he's clearly a war god. He also presides over matters of justice and of law. He's remembered in Tuesday. For example, Tue or Tia are, are, are related names of, the, of, of this god, and he gave his name to the T-Rune in Norse runic alphabet. He has quite a dramatic character when he does appear. In one of the poems in the Poetic Edda, the Valkyries go out and they instruct the human hero Sigurd to invoke Tyr for victory in battle. Pray to him and he'll give you battle, victory. In another Eddic poem, Loki, Loki insults him by saying, you're good at stirring up people into strife, but you're no good at reconciling them, are you? He is given the job, for example, of holding the jaws of Fenrir the wolf, who is this great, terrible, destructive wolf character who the gods decide they want to chain up to stop him destroying them. And the wolf basically says, no, I'm not having any of that. And they say, well, look, what we'll do is we, we promise you that Tyr will put his hand in your mouth and... We'll therefore put this silken cord around you, and you know that we won't obviously do anything against you because could, why would we do that? Because obviously, tears put his hand into your mouth as as a hostage. And anyway, they then put this silken cord around the wolf. It then turned into an incredibly strong chain that the wolf cannot break free of, and he bites off tears' arm. So tears are very important character in here because by sacrificing his hand. Or his arm, he allows the gods to chain up this terrible wolf, Fenrir, the wolf, this great wolf of destruction. So he's important, but for such an important god, he doesn't appear as much as you think he would or should in Norse mythology. And one of the theories is that like Thor, he's been overshadowed by Odin. And that at some point in the formation of Norse mythology, Tyr was a more dominant war god than he later was. And as the cult of Odin increased in its popularity, that he rather overshadowed Tyr. So Tyr was left with this role of hero, warrior god, the one who who helps control the wolf. He'll be there on Ragnarok fighting, but he's no longer as dominant as he should be you would have thought because odin seems to have d- displaced him somewhat
0: well one god that gets a lot of play in the mythology you've mentioned his name throughout this is loki yes what did his what was his role in uh, in the norse mythology loki is a very very
1: interesting god it's it's very easy to simply see loki or loki as the norse equivalent of the devil but Loki is, is is more complicated than that, in as much as there's an ambiguity about uh, about him. Uh, th- there's a whole collection in the Prose Edda, a section called The Tricking of Gilfi," in which we're introduced to the trickster god Loki and his terrible children. And, and his character is absolutely central to Norse mythology and to the group dynamics of the gods. What's interesting is Loki is described as the half-brother of Odin, they share the same mother, but whereas Odin's father was one of the gods, Loki's father was a giant. So immediately we have this kind of ah, there's giant DNA in Loki. this is not going to end well because as I say the, the God the, the, the gods look at the giants as being the forces of destruction, primordial chaos, for example. So that means that but it means that Loki enjoys a peculiar distinction. He belongs to two worlds at the same time. The gods and the giants, natural enemies. He's a cause of conflict, but at other times he's a trick, he's a trickster god. He's not always portrayed as evil, for example. He is described, for example, in the Sirius' prophecy as that evil loving Loki. And Snorri describes him as Loki has a handsome and pleasing appearance, but he is evil in character and he p- behaves capriciously and we can certainly see that he insults the gods and goddesses in loki's quarrel and causes no end of trouble he contrives the death of balder by the blind god hod because he twigs that the mistletoe had never promised it wouldn't hurt balder so ah he can fashion an arrow out of that get hod to throw it or fire it and kill balder now this is just sheer nastiness. This is, this is evil mischief making. No question about that. But on the other hand, on the other hand, he's also seen as being uh, a trickster god. He is seen as sometimes being on adventures with uh, Thor, for example. He's not always presented as being ultimately evil. But the evil is always there bubbling below the car, below the surface. And it's not surprising, for example, that he, he fathers a whole bunch of destructive forces he's the father of fenrir the wolf who will eventually destroy odin um, he's he he's the father of the midgard serpent that will eventually kill thor he's the father of hell who will prevent, who will eventually create a boat that will allow the force of destruction to sail right up to asgard and destroy it so loki is a curious character he clearly is presented in a lot of stories as evil as destructive. In other ones, he is a trickster god, a god of who uses his wits, as it were, who's always out for number one, but is curiously ambiguous. It's as if the Norse could not finally come down on one side or the other as to who, who, they, who, who they see him as. But ultimately, he will make his own decision, and he will decide against the gods at, at Ragnarok, and he will be a primary force in their ultimate destruction. So I suppose that's the ultimate That's the ultimate ending. Yeah, he will destroy the gods eventually, whatever he's done in the past.
0: Now, my, my favorite story of Loki was the one where he was, he was an Asgard, and he was just stirring the pot. Like, he was going around to each of the gods and saying, and sort of bringing up their, their own, like, the stuff yeah. you don't talk about. And they're like, you know, no, you don't right. talk about that. Very sexual. Right, somewhere. yeah, very sexual. I mean, it, it reminded me of like the person, like in your, you know, that one person in your family that just, when there's a family Union. They're always like they're trying to create conflict. (laughs) That's what Loki was doing.
1: Yeah, I mean he's really rude as well. He he goes in and says, "Freya, yeah, yeah. Do you remember the time you were having sex with your brother? And yeah, and everybody came in and found you. Yeah, yeah. And while you were doing it, you were so embarrassed. You suddenly you you suddenly passed wind very very loudly. You're thinking, (laughs) what? What? Loki says that. Now, not surprisingly, people are shocked and horrified. Yes, he's a stirring-up god. If anybody's got an uncle like that, their family's got a problem.
0: Right. Well, let's talk about Ragnarok. This is all leading up there. So the gods are, they're they're powerful, they're omniscient. And like, but they know that they're going to be destroyed at some point at Ragnarok. So what happens at Ragnarok? Ragnarok hangs over the gods throughout. It is this kind of dark shadow.
1: It is this, this cloud that's always on the horizon. And we, we are told that Ragnarok will come at a point in the future that is signaled by certain cosmic events there will be three terrible winters in which the world will be torn by conflict. Son against father, daughter against mother, terrible destructions. Then as if that isn't enough, it'll be followed by three strange and cold winters. Deep snow will cover the land. The sun will lack the heat to thaw that deep snow. And after those six winters, the forces of chaos that have been held throughout the centuries will finally break free. The wolf named Skull will pursue the sun, catch up with her, and will swallow her, bringing disaster on all people. The wolf, called Hati Hodrit Nitsun, will pursue the moon and will swallow the moon. The stars will disappear from the sky. The earth will be shaken, mountains will fall, and trees will be uprooted. Fenrir the wolf, the greatest force of destruction, will break his bonds and be free. The Midgard serpent that circles the world in its rage will fling itself against the shore and the sea will flow across the land. The ship, Naglfar, constructed from the fingernails and toenails of dead men will break forth from its moorings. The Midgard serpent will spit its poison across sky and sea and side by side with Fenrir the wolf and with that great and terrible ship will drive towards Asgard. The sky will tear apart. The sons of Muspel will ride from the place of fire. They will break the bridge Bifrost that connects heaven and earth. Freya, the Vanir god, will fall. Tyr, too, will fall in battle before the great evil dog called Garm. Odin himself will at last die, swallowed by the jaws of Fenrir the wolf. Loki, and Heimdall will kill each other in battle, and fire will consume the whole world. Thor will at last kill the Midgard serpent, but as he walks away from it, he will succumb to its poison, and the world of the gods will crumble in fire, destruction, terror, and blood. That's frightening. No, it's really scary. Like- <laughs> but it's, it's not the end, because the strange thing is... That we are told that somehow the earth will once more rise from the sea. Green will come back. Crops will grow. Two or three gods will have survived the slaughter. A couple of people will have survived the slaughter. And it will start to grow again. It's as if they will rebuild from the ashes of the destruction. But they will find golden playing pieces, lying in the long grass, and pick them up and think, these are remnants of a world now gone, of games once played by gods no longer here. So there is a strange suggestion
0: that after Ragnarok comes something else. Intriguing. It is intriguing. So we talked about Norse mythology, but another part of Norse literature that we have, thanks to these these 13th century writers, are the sagas. Yes. What were the sagas, and how did they incorporate Norse mythology into them?
1: Many people will, 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 will know
0: Norse culture from the
1: sagas. Basically, mostly in Iceland in the 13th century, a little bit later, we get a series of dramatic stories being told about the doings of heroes. And they tend to fit into a number of broad categories. Some of them are what we call family sagas. They tell the doings of great characters from the Icelandic past who've sailed the seas and founded settlements and and carved out a home in the wilderness. I mean, it's very much American West type stuff, you know, go West, young man, and, and create your destiny type stuff. And it's those sort of pioneering people that, that appear in the family sagas. Every now and then we get we get we, we get little snippets of gods and goddesses and mythology. But mostly they are larger than life possibly, possibly real people from the past, but they have a kind of um, a Robin Hood, King Arthur-y type feel about them. You have a feeling maybe they did exist, but maybe they've been added to and developed over time. Those are the family sagas, and some of them are not mythological at all. They basically are the everyday violent doings of Icelandic folk. But then we have other ones, which we call the Fulnalda sagas, sagas of the ancient times. And those are ones that kind of form a bridge between the straightforward myths that we've been talking about and the non-supernatural world of politics, family quarrels, ambitions, burning your neighbor's farm that we find in the family sagas. And they tend to have strange mixtures of real-life people and some pretty mythological events. So, for example, in one called the Saga of the Volsungs, we see the human world, but we also see echoes of real, perhaps, 4th and 5th century events, but intermingled with mythological features. We see a broken sword being reformed, again, very Lords of the Rings this, and therefore being invincible. We see the doings of the gods and the goddesses appearing alongside events that maybe echoes of real historical events. We see Fafnir, the um, the, the serpent dragon, being killed by Sigurds, by Sigurd the warrior. But these kind of strange, clearly mythological events are often set in a half-remembered world of, of early Germanic tribes, battles with the Huns, folk movements that happened at the end of the Roman Empire. So, the 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 sagas of the ancient times are the ones that give us our best mix of mythological elements mixed in with echoes of perhaps real events and that's quite intriguing because it just goes to show how people do mix the mythological and the half remembered history together in one go but but some of the sagas aren't like that at all they they are they are as i say the everyday story
0: of fairly violent Icelandic folk. And as you talk about in the book, like the sagas, there was like this period where it was just, they were just pumping these things out. Mm. Um, Why, what was going on there? Why was there just like, and this was before there was a lot of written records in Europe, but in Iceland, for whatever reason, they were just, Putting stuff out uh, with these sagas. What was going on there? Yeah,
1: that's a good point because there clearly is this huge formative period towards the end of the, the 12th into the 13th century. Story Sturluson, for example, you know, he's writing in the 1220s, you know, that, that sort of period of time. And there's a huge creative activity there in which these, these things are being put together and retold and told and retold again and so on. There's a big debate what's going on here. One way of viewing it is that. By the thirteenth century, Christianity is 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 dominant in Iceland. The battle's been won. The Cross of Christ has has beaten the hammer of Thor. And that that allows Christian Icelandic writers to if you like, draw upon their current cultural heritage because it's no longer spiritually threatening. They can talk about it because most people don't believe in that kind of thing anymore. So it's almost like now we don't believe that anymore. Now we don't think those gods really were real. Let's talk about it. There also seems to have been a kind of a a self-conscious antiquarianism as well, a kind of a, let's celebrate our historic roots. Let's define ourselves as who we are as Icelanders, for example. And some of that may have been because of politics. There was a big tussle going on at the time between the the dominant forces in Iceland and the king of Norway, as to whether Iceland was to remain an independent republic or whether it was to be brought back under the control of the the Norwegian kings. In the end, the Norwegian kings won out. Sad to say, Snorri Sturluson, who we've heard an awful lot about today, was murdered by agents of the Norwegian king. In fact, you can go to his farmstead on Iceland. And you can sit next door to the natural hot water pool where Snorri went of an evening with his friends and gathered all these legends. And you can step back from it and just down the hill, there'll be the remains of the barn where Snorri ran into there to try to escape his assassins, was tracked down into a corner and was was a hack to death. So not a happy ending for Snorri, I'm afraid, but it may well be that some of the politics of the time encourage people like Snorri to try to create an Icelandic culture which was independent of Norway, vibrant, culturally confident, as part almost, if you like, of kind of like a nascent Icelandic nationalism. But because of that, we suddenly get this explosion of literary accounts of traditions, which otherwise would have been totally lost. And this one man, Snorri Sturluson, is actually responsible for a considerable amount of it. He's not the only one, but he's responsible for a considerable amount of it. And it does remind us how certain people in history can play a major part in preserving
0: and communicating the traditions of their people. So throughout this, you've been talking about how we still see the influence of Norse mythology in our culture today. We have days of the week named after gods. Tolkien used Norse mythology a lot in his work. Where else do we still see it today in the 21st century? Well, clearly it spoke into
1: quite a lot of our view of the northern world. Richard Wagner, for example, the Ring of the Neubelung, Twilight of the Gods. A lot of people will know about Ragnarok and this, these incredible stories. They'll know about gold hidden in the Rhine. They'll know about some of these Norse heroes because of, of the big input into particularly 19th century classical music, for example, particularly German music, and Wagner played a very big part of that. The Ring Cycle, for example, the operatic Ring Cycle, uh, a big part of popularising that in the 19th century. Yep, we've got Tolkien. When you read The Hobbit, when you look at The Lords of the Rings, uh, and you look at The world of Middle-earth. It's that word again, Midgard. When you see these giants and you see, you know, effectively trolls, when you see elves and dwarfs, you are looking into a world which is very much indebted to the mythology of the northern world of the Norse and also of the pre-Christian Anglo-Saxons. And it's not surprising, for example, that Tolkien w- w- was an old English scholar I and mean, he was an academic. Uh, he, he knew his stuff. So that's, that's entered into our mythology in, in, a, in a very big way. In different ways, of course, Marvel have picked up the whole concept of Thor and these dramatic larger-than-life characters. And so in many ways, many people now know about Thor, not because of the myths themselves, not because of these echoes in, in other mythologies, but they know about him because of his place within you know, the Avengers films, within Marvel's comics. And in many ways, we're seeing a quite interesting take on Thor there, where he is clearly regarded as a, a superhero, and yet he seems straight to human as well. So that's an interesting take on him and an interesting retake, uh, recreation of him. We could also see a very dark side as well. It's, it's not, it's, 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 not surprising, for example, that, that the Nazis in the 1930s became absolutely obsessed with Nordic mythology. It's not surprising, for example, that the SS runes that we see on the helmets of, you know, Hitler's black shirted, black uniformed uh, Nazi army, you know, the SS, Waffen SS um, are in fact taken from, from Norse mythology. So th- the Nazis sadly took this mis- Norse mythology and gave it a terrible, dark spin as a way of trying to create a, a different kind of religious mythology to Christianity, which they were very, very against. But perhaps perhaps in a more positive sense, because obviously that's a very dark use and a very dark manipulation of, of Norse mythology. I think one of the reasons why they are of, of, of enduring interest to people is because rather like the Greek deities for all their mythological character, they do rather look like larger-than-life humans. And looking at the Norse myths, you can see themes of love, betrayal, lust, greed, conflict, and interaction. You can see conflict between forces of construction. You can see forces of, of, of chaos. And I think people find that quite approachable and quite an interesting, illustrative way to talk about... some of of the both light and dark aspects of, of, of human nature, if you see what I mean. And also, I guess Ragnarok may sometimes appeal to a rather nihilistic element of human nature living in a nuclear age.
0: So the Norse myths remain with us and still intrigue us. Well, Martin, I've really enjoyed our conversation. Is there some place people can go to learn more about the book and your work? For those wishing to explore this topic further, our recently published book, Tales of
1: Valhalla, Norse Myths and Legends by Martin and Hannah Wittock, and published by Pegasus Books of New York, offers a retelling of the stories. And because this is a retelling rather than a new translation, we have had the freedom to focus on the particular stories, explain aspects that otherwise may be confusing or obscure, and introduce each story with background information. But we have kept close to the content of the original Old Norse myths and legends. To read these stories in their original context, a number of modern academic translations are available, and listeners could find these by looking for Prose Edda, Poetic Edda, and the various sagas, either through local booksellers or online searches. Well, Martin, thanks
0: so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. It's been good to be with you. My guest today is Martin Wittick. He is the co-author of the book Tales of Valhalla. It's available on Amazon.com. Also check out our show notes at AOM.is slash Norse Myths, where you find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the A1 Podcast. Check out our website, artofmanliness.com, where you can find all the podcast archives there. We're coming up on 500. Also, we've got thousands of articles up there, including a whole series about Norse mythology. So check that out. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate it if you take one minute to give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think would get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay reminding you to not only listen to the A1 Podcast, but put what you've heard into action. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath Learning Format,